Good morning, everyone. This going to be okay, Ben? All right. Ben's our tech. He knows what's going on. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 1 to 17 during the bulk of our time. We're starting a new series today, um, going through the whole book of Romans, and I'll get to why we're doing that here in just a little bit. But first, I have a question for you. What do you get when you have a Muslim, a Christian, and a Buddhist walk into a smoothie bar? A debate about substitutionary atonement. This is not my attempt at a lame pastor joke. It actually is a real-life occasion that happened in the testimony of Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi is, well, was, a brother in Christ who came to know Christ coming out of a Muslim background, thoroughly opposed to Christ. And he talks about a, a time when he and a Christian friend, while Nabil himself was still a Muslim, and a Buddhist friend actually did walk into a smoothie bar. And they were debating back and forth about why it was important for Jesus to die for our sins. And of course, the Christian, his name was David, defended biblically the importance of Christ substituting in the place of sinners and why it was absolutely essential. Nabil, as a Muslim, was angry about that doctrine. And he debated and could not get to why, in his mind, one man could take the place of all sinners or why all sin could be just lumped together as all, con all condemned in the eyes of God, whether you are a rapist, a murderer, or a jaywalker. Why should people who are varying degrees of sinners all face the same punishment? And how could one man take the punishment for all of those people? Well, as they debated those things in the smoothie bar that day, sipping on their smoothies, they came to the realization through David's presentation of the gospel through the book of Romans, just how important that doctrine is. But more importantly, how God used the book of Romans to awaken Nabil Qureshi to the truth of who he is and what he had done. I'll return more to Nabil's story in a little bit, but the book of Romans over centuries and millennia since it has been written, has influenced such people as Augustine of Hippo, church father, who lived a licentious and wicked life until one day in deep conviction he heard a child say, take and read, take and read. And he picked up the scroll that he had in hand and from Romans 13 read that he should put on the Lord Jesus Christ and put away all of his wickedness. And he was convicted and converted in 1500, the author of the, the song that Pastor Doug sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Martin Luther, was agonizing in his soul about how a righteous God could ever be approachable and how any man or woman could ever approach that God when our righteousness is filthy. And it was in reading a text that we will deal with today that light came for Martin Luther, and the book of Romans led to the faith 
that he embraced and spread in the Protestant Reformation. And it was the preface to his commentary on Galatians that was read one night in a small group of very earnest believers. And John Wesley happened to be there, who had been wrestling and even had been a missionary and come to the realization that he was unconverted. And he didn't know what to do, but a friend invited him to this Bible study. And as Romans was referred to in the preface to this commentary, John Wesley finally realized that he needed Christ to be his savior. The book of Romans has a rich history of people throughout time hearing its message and turning. It is, it's, it's as if this book, this letter is a watershed that once you hit it, you will go one way or the other, but you cannot come away from it the same. Some people have called this letter to the Romans the greatest letter ever written. And that's the title of the message that I have today, and we want to talk about all the matters that introduce us to this letter and how to approach it. Because as we go into the remainder of this series, we will go through each chapter of Romans in the hope that we will understand its message, but that likewise we will be changed by what we read. We want to come to this letter to realize the same things that Nabil Qureshi, that John Wesley, that Martin Luther, that Augustine of Hippo encountered time and time again. And it's this main theme. Romans tells us of the righteous God who has done all the work to make sinful people right with himself. I'll say again, and it's good to bear in mind the remainder of our time. Romans tells us of the righteous God who has done all the work to make sinful people right with himself. By the time we get to the end today, we will see that theme clearly spelled out in the last couple of verses. And here's how I want to approach it with you. I want to look at the author, the recipients, the message itself, and how we should respond. All right, clear enough? And it's how we have to approach this because as we look at this text, we see a lot of the, prep, the pronoun I or my. I or my is used about 20 times in these first 17 verses, which tells us there's a lot of personal stuff to work through and introductory things to understand before we get into the bulk of the rest of the book. So let's begin with that now. In the first place, let's look at the author. The author is Paul. And in the first six verses, he introduces himself. Now, when we write emails or letters today, you know you tend to put the name of the person that you're writing, dear so-and-so, or hey, so-and-so, and then at the end, you usually put your name. In this time period, and like it is with many cultures around the world even today, they begin by introducing themselves, and then they only afterwards greet who they are writing. And Paul typically will do this in every one of his letters. Um, as you read all 13 of them, you'll see him following this pattern again and again. In this letter, he spends an inordinate amount, an unusual amount of time talking about himself. Why? Because he's never been to Rome. 
He knows some of the people who are in the church there, but he doesn't know many of them. And he needs to introduce himself to them. By this point, Paul has already traveled around three missionary journeys. And he says by the time we get to Romans 15 that he's actually hoping to get ultimately over to Spain. He doesn't think anybody's been there with the gospel yet. And he's eager to go there. And he's got some things to finish up with giving money to the Jerusalem church because of the famine that's going on there. But he's looking at Rome as this launching point for him to go on further into the regions where the gospel has never been preached. And he made it his aim to be about the business of going where no one else had shared Christ before so that he wasn't building on another man's foundation. But in order to get that launching pad in the Church of Rome established, Paul recognizes he's got to share with them some things about himself. The year is A.D. 57. And it's ironic that it's about 20-some years from the time of the initial missionary push and the work of Paul and the other apostles in getting the word out to the various churches around the provinces And now you've got Paul writing to a new generation that do not understand a lot about him and have not met him. It's similar to how I think about 9-11 today. I can remember where I was 21 years ago, but we've got some young adults here now, 21 years old, who were born after the effects of 9-11. And when they hear about it, they're concerned, but they don't have a lot that they can pull back on in terms of experience of what it was like before then. I think Paul was in a similar state. He was writing to people who weren't aware of a lot of the things that he had been through. They didn't know um, all the details that Paul's about to share with them. And what maybe initially just seems like a, a letter to introduce himself to them so that he can come and spend time with them turns into a theological treatise that is important for them to grab onto. So what does Paul say about himself? First of all, he says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. The word servant here is that word in Greek, doulos, which is often translated slave. He says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. This is what he says about himself right out of the gate. And this is important for us to recognize. He doesn't say, Paul, master theologian, missionary pastor. Right? If, if his LinkedIn was up and live back then, what would, what would we have put if we were Paul in that time period trying to promote himself? Paul says, Paul, a slave, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, on the one hand, we might think that that's a very low status. To Jewish people, to be a slave of Yahweh would have been the premier status of all of their leaders. They would think of people like Moses, a servant of Yahweh. They would think of people like Joshua, a servant of Yahweh. David, a servant of Yahweh. But here's Paul identifying with that Jewish stream. He likewise is a servant, but who is he a servant of? Yahweh's name is not there. It is Christ Jesus. It shows us initially, in the very first words that Paul says, that he is proclaiming 
the deity of Jesus Christ. And he is Jesus Christ's servant here on earth. Whatever Jesus says to do, he will do. Wherever Jesus says to go, he will go. And then coupled with that is the next description that he is called to be an apostle. So Paul is a slave, but he is also an apostle. An apostle is a a particular group of men that got to see the risen Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and further received from Jesus a mission to go out and represent him to a people group. We don't have apostles today. I don't care what some churches have on their websites, what you see on billboards around town. There are no apostles in this sense of what the apostle Paul was. He and the 12 and Matthias, who was chosen after Judas hung himself, were unique, never to be repeated offices in the history of the church. Paul, by saying he was an apostle, is saying, I have seen Jesus. If there's anybody that says that to you today, don't believe them. But if Paul says it in the word, believe him and listen to what he says. That's the importance of an apostle. You you may think, friends, that you can dismiss the words of the New Testament, that these aren't the words of Jesus. No, Romans are the words of Jesus. And this is the weight of the importance of them. They come from one of his apostles who has been sent to the Gentiles. That's the majority of us. So that we would hear the good news that he was sent to share. Right, and that gets to his mission He doesn't talk about himself very much before he starts to define what he's about. So here's what he says. He says that he is set apart for the gospel of God. And we want to look at his mission in these terms. What was the source of his mission? Where did his instructions come from? He's already told us it was Christ Jesus, that he was the apostle sent by Jesus. But likewise, we see that he was set apart for the gospel of God. Now, this verb, set apart, is interesting. In Greek, it's the word aphorismenos, and it actually is similar sounding, and it's tied to the word Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, meaning like if you were looking for a Pharisee who was the most Pharisaical of all the Pharisees, you would look to Paul. But he's using a verb that describes what the Pharisees were about. They were set apart for God's law. But he says, I am set apart for the gospel. I am set apart not for the law, but for the gospel, which helps shed light on the law and everything else because it points us to God and to his word about Jesus. This is Paul. What he once had done was zealously try to persecute and stamp out what he perceived to be the disease spreading throughout Asia Minor. The disease was Christianity. And when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, and Jesus shone his light on Paul and blinded him and asked him that question, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul, who would then become Paul, recognized that his whole life had been built around a lie. And that in that moment, when he was saved, 
his pursuit of stamping out the disease of Christianity changed because in those Christians, he saw at work the actual power of God. They were the ones who were producing the kingdom of God. And his zealous pursuit to kill them had done nothing but help to spread it further. So instead of pursuing that with a changed heart, he pursued the goals Jesus gave him. I want to look at that phrase if we look at Romans chapter 1. We're still in verse 1. I'll go a little quicker here soon. But it says, of God, of God. It's such a wonderful phrase. I just want to pause on it for a minute just to make this point. The gospel does not come from people. Man did not make the gospel up. It comes from God. God made the gospel up. And it is his gospel. It's the gospel of God. Wonderful phrase. And if you're ever wondering, you know, if this is just all a man-made, made-up religion, no, it's not. Because it comes from God. I have more proofs. Let's go on. The gospel isn't even something in this terms of being the gospel of God that Paul himself had to elaborate on or, or make up after God gave it to him because he says in verse 2, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. The Old Testament that Paul preached from and the New Testament that he's, he's writing relates back to that Old Testament and says all that stuff in the Old Testament, that was about Jesus. And all of that stuff points us now to fleshing out all that God's been preparing us for for all these generations. You go to Isaiah and you learn about the suffering servant, that's Jesus. And what he did on the cross, that shows in real time what happened back then. As Paul preached, he would preach the Old Testament because he was set apart for the gospel of God. He's not making this up as he goes. The subject of his mission is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, he begins by saying that he is set apart for this gospel. It's coming from the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. And he mentions two main things about Jesus Christ, his son. First of all, he is descendant from David according to the flesh. Now, that's an important thing for him to note. Why? Um, well, he was so serious about it that when you see that expression, from the flesh, it's actually the Greek expression, ek spermatos. I think you can hear in there a word that we use in English. Why was Paul that explicit? Because he wanted people to understand Jesus was actually here and he, he was a human. He came to this earth as a man. He didn't just come down and pretend to be a man or appear to be a man. He was an actual man. And he was afflicted and he suffered as a human being. He understood what it was like for us humans to be down here. And he was furthermore in the line of kingly King David. He had a heritage that related to his natural succession to be the king. But there's something else he says about Jesus. If you look at verse 4, that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So not only was he truly a man, but he was 
declared to be the powerful Son of God. Now, Jesus was always the Son of God. While he was here on earth, he would say often about himself that he was God's Son and refer to God as his Father. So when this says he was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness, what that refers to is what happened at the day of the resurrection. That word declared in your Bible, verse 4, is similar to our word in English for horizon. It's where the sky meets the earth. It was the dividing line for all of reality. And that's what he's saying about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, when he himself walked out of that grave, was the reality that defined reality. No longer should we wonder about what God thinks about the work of Jesus. No, no more should we wonder how we can be good with God again. It was confirmed, as clear as the horizon is marked off, that this is the reality of Jesus Christ. This is his person. He is who he said he is. The resurrection proves and validates his claims. This is Paul's subject, and his scope is people from all nations glorifying Jesus Christ with obedient faith. This is what he says in verse 5. He says, through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul was commissioned to be the apostle to the rest of the world. Now he does say the Jew first and also to the Greek down in verses 16 and 17. But his commission was to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to go out to the outermost regions of the earth. And I'm sure glad he did because you know where we are this morning? The outermost regions of the earth. East Tennessee is not the hub of all the activity of God at least not in the perspective of the first century. And if Paul himself had not obeyed Jesus Christ and gone out at his commission, receiving his grace and ministering that to people, person after person, it wouldn't have trickled down to you and me. I'm so glad he did. And the scope of this is incredible. Jesus is all about, and God the Father wills, people from all nations glorifying Jesus Christ with obedient faith. This world, little by little, like a seed in the ground growing up into a massive tree, is becoming what Jesus wants it to be. And the way to get that, the way to approach that, is to get the gospel out. To speak it, to share it, and to help people know everything that Jesus said. That's why Paul says what he says here about the obedience of faith. It's an interesting phrase, and I'll just explain it this way, because it could be potentially confusing. You know, if you read it this way, um, it could be that it's Paul saying, I want people to obey so that they can have faith. And that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is actually the opposite. He wants people from their faith to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the, the new international version actually translates this expression. Maybe you have that translation today. The obedience that comes from faith. And that's actually very appropriate. I think that's the best way to convey this important idea. God is all about not just being saved and then forgetting about Jesus. He's about the power of God invading people's lives so that they are changed and that they're living lives showing how they've been changed. And it's not coming from them. It's coming from God at work in them. That's what Paul's all about. That's what he rejoices to see. And that's what he prays for. Well, these are all good things. We've learned about Paul, but let's go quickly to the recipients. These are the people who received this letter. They were the believers in Rome. Uh, we don't know a lot about how the church at Rome started. Nowadays, there's the Roman Catholic Church, and th those things are everywhere. But that didn't exist yet in Rome at this time. There's no evidence that the Apostle Peter, much to the chagrin of the Roman Catholic Church, started the Roman Catholic Church in Rome. By this point of AD 57, when this letter was written, Peter, by the best estimates, hadn't been to Rome just yet. And neither had Paul. Do you know what? The best understanding of this church in Rome is that people who went to the day of Pentecost to celebrate that feast heard Peter and the apostles preach in their own languages and got saved and baptized and returned to Rome and spread the message. And by the time of AD 57, you have a thriving church meeting in different homes around Rome, the capital of the world. It's a very strategic place, but how did the church start? Not by big names, not by celebrities, but by average Christians. And I want to stop here and just say, never underestimate the influence of everyday Christians. You, my friends, have such an influence to the people around you. People that you see every day that may not show up here. And before they would ever come to a service like this, they have the influence that you provide by living out the power of God in front of them and helping them to know Jesus. Never underestimate what God can do through you and how he builds his church. Not by big names and not by powerful preachers, but by everyday Christians. Now, the year of AD 57 made up for a unique setting for the Church of Rome because eight years earlier, in around the year 49, the Emperor Claudius had intensely persecuted the Jews, Jewish Christians included. And they decided, almost all of them, to leave Rome and left behind a fledgling church mostly made up of Gentile believers. So for that eight-year time period until Claudius died and the Jews started to come back and to rejoin the church, the Gentiles took over the church. And the Jews returned to find almost a thoroughly Gentile congregation. And we will learn as we go through the book of Romans why tensions occur between people who don't think the same in church and how we handle those things. Why matters of conscience emerge. Why one person thinks it's okay to do something and why the other group thinks that's not okay and could actually be um, 
you know, could, could send you to hell, perhaps, if you eat that meat or take that drink, right? Paul writes to bring clarity, and that's what we'll find in the book of Romans. And so that's something to look forward to. But in the text, here's what Paul says. He says in verse 7, to all those in Rome, first of all, who are loved by God. You are loved by God. Such an encouragement to know that I'm loved. It's an encouragement for anybody to know you're loved. And if you take a, a moment just to step back and think about it, it is foundational in our motivation for doing what we do every day. If you know that someone loves you, that brings security. If you know that someone loves you, that gives you motivation to get up and eagerness to explore what that day might have for you. And it actually points you back to a relationship. And this is what Paul encourages them with. You are loved by God. He doesn't say, I'm writing to you guys who love God. He's saying, you are loved by God. I started this story with, or this sermon rather, with the story of Nabil Qureshi sitting in that smoothie bar. Let's go back to the smoothie bar just for a minute. All right, as he and his friend David were debating the claims of Christianity, Nabil could not believe, like I said, that one man could atone and pay for all the sins of humanity. He said at the time in his book, if I went to the White House, he said, what is our, our current debt, seven trillion? This was back a long time ago. And he said, what if I went, what if I went to the White House and I said to President Bush, hey, W, which is what he called him in the book, how about I pay off the national debt and I give you this dollar? He said he would look at me like, like I'm crazy. He said, how could one man go to God and say, by my merits, I will pay for all of these billions of people? It just doesn't make sense. And Nabil just dismissed it as irrelevant. And his friend David said, you're forgetting one thing, that the man you're talking about is God. The message of the gospel is that he was born of the flesh, according to David, but he was risen in power and declared to be the son of God in power by the spirit of holiness. So what are we to make of this if that is the claim? He's not an ordinary man. And once that was established, Nabil said, well, I don't understand, even if all of our sin needs to be punished, I get if, if we, we can't go into heaven because of any sin, and any sin at all will disqualify us from heaven. But starting to be convicted, Nabil said, how is it that God would forgive me? Why would he want to? And his friend David said, because he's God. And he said, well, that still doesn't make any sense. Because he's your father. What do you mean he's my father? What does that have to do with anything? And his friend David said, because he loves you. This started to pierce Nabil's heart. Your father loves you. Thankfully, God had given him a good dad, and he remembered back at the times of his own father and how his father had nurtured him and helped him. And in that moment, he started to piece together what Romans here is seeking to convey. You are loved by God. Well, let's go on 
because there's another thing that Paul says about them. They are called to be saints. Paul says, secondly, that these people are called to be saints. This is the the third time that Paul has used that word call in these few verses. Now, just as Paul himself was called by the risen Christ to go out and to be an apostle, so likewise, Jesus continues to call people to follow him and be his saints or holy ones. Notice that order. You are called to be saints. Not that you are saints and then you're called to do something. There is no making yourself a saint in the eyes of God. God declares you to be his saint by the work that he does in you. And a saint here is not a a spiritual giant, a pastor, an evangelist, or a missionary, but anyone who the Lord calls to himself to belong to him. Anyone that the Lord loves and calls to himself and who calls out on him in faith is a saint. And likewise, the church is a place where mutual encouragement should happen all the time. The Apostle Paul tells the the Romans later that he's praying for them, he's thankful for their testimony that's going throughout all the world, and he's actually praying that he can come and encourage them by some spiritual gift and to be mutually encouraged by their faith. This is what West Park ought to be all about, that this gathering And the events that we have, our community groups, we're being equipped for something. What is that? So that we could mutually encourage one another and use our gifts. I love what Dave shared with us about their their new church. As they have people come in, they're not saying, all right, we can provide you this and this and this and this. Will you stay? But they're saying, I don't think you would say it like that, brother. But you would say, here are some ways that we, we see God working in us how are you going to chip in, not just to do your part, but how has God gifted you in putting you here? Come here each Sunday and think of ways that you can encourage someone else and figure out how you need to be encouraged and maybe help people know that by talking with them, but learn that this is our heritage as the saints of God. This is one way to be a saint. It's to encourage each other. And he finally says, your father and the Lord send you grace and peace. Paul begins every one of his letters like that, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we almost just skip over and we're like, yeah, 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 let's get to the meat. But Paul says, no, 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 wait. Grace and peace. These words are in the right order. If it was peace and grace, it would be, you know, Achieve peace with God and then you'll experience grace. No, no, the order is get grace from God and then experience peace with God. And that's what God does. The moment you think you can figure out grace, you need to go back and start all over again because you don't understand grace. We don't get why God would be gracious to us. We shouldn't get it because there's no reason why he should be gracious to us. But God is gracious to us because of his great nature, because he's our father, and because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have peace. And this is our clue as to what's gonna happen for the rest of our lives. All right, the message of the gospel really quickly. Time is slipping away. I figured this would happen. There are two things to note about verses 14 to 17. 
It's what Paul says about the message of the gospel. The first thing is this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. During our time in Romans, you will hear the gospel many, many times. One of the burdens that I think preachers feel is that every time we preach the gospel is to make it new and exciting. But the reality is, the power is not in our presentation. The power is not in any amount of creativity we might give it or the wording that we choose. The power is in the gospel itself. And the gospel here is, is of course, that message of God our creator, of man the rebels who deserve death from God as a punishment for their sin, and Jesus the Savior who came to take the punishment for those sinners so that they might be forgiven and so they might likewise be accounted as righteous before God. And then the response of that to believe and repent, that's the gospel. But the gospel, once it penetrates your hardened heart and my hardened heart, grows in you so that that power as it is spoken is unleashed in you. And those who turn to God are humbled and continue to grow and to stick with Jesus. The power of God for salvation, that is the gospel. And so far I would just commend you to believe it. And likewise it says, Paul says of the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's in that verse, down in verse 17, that Martin Luther, for many, many weeks and months, was traumatized in his soul. He got to this point when he read, I read the book of Romans, and it tells me that in this book, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he kept thinking of the righteousness of God as the righteous character of God, the one who makes all decisions based on his holiness and perfections. He knew God was perfect, he knew God was holy, and he felt that as if he had no possible way to approach that God. And Romans 1.17 made him mad, angry. But he didn't give up because he had nowhere else to go. It's like the disciples when Jesus asked, would you too go somewhere else? And the disciples responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So he prayed for understanding, and he dug in. He realized that the righteousness of God can mean something else. It could also mean the righteousness that God provides the righteousness that he works out. And in the context, it's talking about the righteous God who is perfect. And we can't approach him in our own sin. We would never be accepted. But that righteous God has provided a righteousness that is separate to what we could ever accomplish. That God, that righteous God, has in the process in the words of John Stott, commentator, of righteousing unrighteous people for the sake of his own name. Because he's our father, 
He loves us, and he sent the Son to die in our place. This is good news. So how should we respond to it? A response, quickly. Let's base our response like the Apostle Paul does. And there are two statements he makes. The first is, I am obligated. Would you say about yourself that you are obligated in response to this message today? Well, there's a couple ways to think about obligated. On the one hand, if somebody shared with you, loaned you $100, you would be obligated to pay them back. And he's not talking about being obligated to pay God back. There's another sense in which we have an obligation. What if I gave you $100 to give to one of your family members? Until you saw that family member and gave them that $100, you would be obligated to get that done. And Paul, in verses 14 and 15, is describing his own sense that he needs to respond with an obligation that is yet unfulfilled. He's received so much from God that he is bursting to share that good news with others. Do you have that obligation? And secondly, he says, I am not ashamed. Would you say ever that you are ashamed of God or that you are ashamed of his gospel? If we are honest, there are times when each of us have been tempted in that way. It could be that we value the opinions of other people more than we value the opinions of God. Or we don't want to offend somebody. And so out of that desire not to offend, we don't fulfill the obligation that we have based on all God has done for us to share that news with others. It could be that we don't like being told that we are totally sinfully helpless people. The Apostle Paul recognized that about himself. And he understood that without Jesus, he would be lost. But with Jesus and all that Jesus had done for him, he had nothing to fear and no reason to be ashamed. And he could pursue the will of God, not worried about other, other people's opinions, and facing the reality of his own sinful life and saying, I know the Savior who has come and atoned and died for this sin. And that's why he ends the text like he does and says the righteous shall live by faith. Not feelings, not their own understanding, but by faith. The same way you got into the Christian life is the same way you continue the Christian life. By faith. By faith for faith, from faith for faith. This is what the text tells us. And I would just conclude today that this could be the day, even in an introduction to this book, with lots of details, to hear the message again. In the gospel is the power of God for salvation for whoever would believe, anyone. Maybe this is your day to submit to God the Father and to yield your life to Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Pastor Doug's going to come and lead us in the song before the throne of God above as we close.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this text of Scripture. Thank you for what you have provided in this greatest letter ever written. We turn to you for this year of study in this letter, and we express to you our desire to grow in the message of the gospel and to hear Jesus clearly as he speaks to us. And I pray now that if this is the time of salvation for any, that they would not leave here today, but that they would come and they would look to Jesus. It's in his name I pray, amen.